I invite all the children to come up here for the children's moment, and you can pick a little animal to sit on. Got some lions and some sheep. There's a tiger. All right. Okay. Raise your hand if you really love your friends and family. What's one way that you like to show your family and your friends? You can sit right on that bunny if you want to. What's one way you like to show your family and your friends how much you love them? Yeah? By hugging them? That's a good way. What is one way that your family shows you how much they love you? Can you think of a way? I have two little girls. Oh, you want to share? They tell you that they love you. That's a good way. I have two little girls who are sitting up here right now. And one way we like to talk about how much we love each other is that we love each other this much. And did you know that God loves you even more than that? That God loves you this, this much? And one of the ways that God showed God's great love for us was by sending Jesus to tell us all about God's love for us and to show us how to best love ourselves and each other. Another great way that we know about God's love for us is how we feel that love from our friends and family. And you want to know something that's really special? We get to be that love of God to our friends and family and in their lives. We get to show other people just how much God loves them and loves us too. This, this much. Let's pray. Loving God, thank you for the gift of your presence in our lives and in the lives of all your creation. Help us to always be aware of how much you love us so that we may show your love to others in all that we do. Amen. Okay, if y'all are three to five years old, you can go with Pastor Maggie to Children's Church, and the rest of y'all can go sit back with your family and friends. Thank y'all. Good morning, Maggie. Okay, that sounds good. You can go back with your family and friends. I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, and when I was in sixth grade, I transferred to a new school a few months after the semester had already started. This new school had assigned seats for everything. Even our seats at the lunch table were assigned alphabetically. So when I sat down to eat that first day, I was faced with half a dozen 11-year-olds who all knew each other pretty well, but knew nothing about me. And the very first thing someone asked me before they asked me about my previous school, or my family, or my siblings, or what part of town I lived in, the very first thing someone asked me was whether I was for Auburn or for Alabama. And when I bravely, foolishly answered Auburn, the table of kids divided in response. Some kids shouted War Eagle, while the others booed and yelled that Auburn was a cow college. And as all mature sixth grade disagreements do, the conversation completely dissolved into character assassinations of Bear Bryant and snide questions of just how many national championships has Auburn won again? In that moment, my 11-year-old brain quickly knew who my allies were, who I could trust, who I considered suspect, and the other kids drew those same conclusions about me. That day at lunch, we all already knew which team we believed to be the greatest, which one we believed mattered the most. 
by posing that question to me, the other kids wanted to know which side was I on? Was I in or was I out? There is so much going on in this passage of scripture we have before us today. And at first glance, it all kind of seems disconnected to me. We start with this image of Jesus calmly sitting with the disciples, teaching them with his arms gently resting around this child. But we end with Jesus using this intense language that evokes self-mutilation, hell, fire, salt, and worms. How do we get from one end of this to the other? What happens that precipitates this shift in Jesus' demeanor? I think some clarity can be found by considering the worries that the disciples are verbalizing in this passage. Two fundamentally human concerns that are not, not only present in the story in Capernaum, but were also on the hearts and minds of me and my classmates around the lunch table in sixth grade. They are questions of one, value, who's the greatest, who's the most important, and they're questions of two, belonging, who is in and who's out. The disciples' concern with value shows itself in the first few verses of this passage. They've been arguing amongst themselves about who's the greatest, who's the most important, and Jesus patiently sits down with them and tells them just to flip their ideas of who matters. In the kingdom of God, Jesus says, whoever wants to be the first must be the last. To illustrate his point, Jesus brings a child into the conversation and holds the child, saying, whoever welcomes a child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomed me welcomes the God who sent me. In the first century, children had some of the lowest social status. So here Jesus is challenging the disciples to rid their ideas of who is the greatest and instead start seeing those who were not normally seen as valuable as those who were actually the most important. By welcoming those with low cultural status like children, Jesus said the disciples would be welcoming God in their midst. This reorientation of who has value is key for Jesus' followers if they wish to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And unfortunately, the disciples just kind of miss it. And the way the scene plays out in my mind, I can see Jesus sitting here, gently holding this child, teaching the disciples this new, transformational, life-giving ways of being in the world. And he has barely finished speaking when the disciple John starts to tattletale, saying that he saw someone who wasn't even one of Jesus' followers, but was acting like it by casting out demons in Jesus' name. This is where I think we see part two of the disciples' worries in this passage, belonging, the who is in, who is out. Jesus kind of shrugs off John's accusation, saying whoever's not against us is for us, but John is irritated that there are people out there who are not even card-carrying members of Jesus' movement who dare to do good in Jesus' name. It doesn't matter to John that these people are actually helping and healing in Jesus' name. John is angry and even tries to stop the good work that they're doing because these others are acting like they're in when John has decided that they're out. Here's a moment where Jesus' attitude shifts. The disciples have been talking about who matters and who belongs, and Jesus responds by telling the disciples it would be better for them to drown or forcibly lose an appendage than for them to be found as a stumbling block to themselves or for, to anyone else. This response from Jesus did not make sense to me when I first read this passage. His words are not only shocking and gruesome, they don't even seem relevant. What do hell, fire, and worms have to do with value and belonging? A couple of things have helped me see Jesus' response in a different light. And the first requires a closer look at the stumbling blocks. The second requires looking at the child in their midst. I've always had the impression that being a stumbling block meant tempting others to sin. Some translations even use the word sin here in this passage. And this really didn't make sense to me. Why are the disciples' anxieties being answered by Jesus just telling them not to sin? 
But biblical scholar, biblical scholar Lawrence M. Wills writes that a stumbling block here actually means something more like a literal obstacle, something or someone that would discourage people from staying within the movement. Meaning that Jesus is not telling them just not to sin per se, he's directly warning his followers not to be found standing in the way of or excluding other people or even themselves from having access to this community of radical acceptance that Jesus has just been preaching about. Jesus knows that if the disciples are worked up about who is the most important, who's in, by default, the natural consequences of creating these categories, there are going to be people who are deemed unimportant, who are othered, who are decidedly out. And I can't help but wonder if what, what really heightens Jesus' apprehensions here, what really ignites his urgent, passionate, and intense rhetoric, is Jesus' concern for how all of this might impact the child that he's holding. Because after pausing to directly address John's concerns about belonging, the first thing Jesus does is come back to these little ones. And drawing from Will's commentary again, Jesus is not only talking about the specific child he's holding, He's talking about any of these little ones, here meaning other children for sure, but also anyone who's vulnerable, anyone whose society has deemed does not have value, who does not belong, who's been denied access to power, influence, or resources. And Jesus is serious about this, because when Jesus is gone, it will be the disciples who continue on in Jesus' name. They will be the ones deciding who has value and who belongs. And Jesus warns it would be better for them to be cast into the sea than to have stood in the way of anyone who wants to follow Jesus, who wants to experience the abundant life found in the kingdom of God that Jesus has come to inaugurate. What's more, Jesus' concerns are not just for these little ones. He's also concerned about the disciples themselves, too. Don't let any part of you cause yourself to stumble, Jesus says. Do whatever you can to continue following me. It's better for just a part of you to be destroyed than for all of your whole self to miss out on the love, liberation, healing, and belonging that are available to us through Jesus. What really gets me here, though, what really gives me pause when I consider how this passage might have anything to do with my life is that the disciple John did not expressly say any of the things that Jesus seems to be intently reacting to. Yes, he and the other disciples show their preoccupation with value and belonging, but it's not like John came right out and said, I want to keep kids and the vulnerable out of your kingdom, Jesus. John was a devoted disciple and Jesus loved him. I doubt that he would have consciously agreed to such intentional and hurtful exclusion. Yet Jesus reacts so forcefully as if that's exactly what John has suggested. Jesus' violent imagery seems to be directly tied to his understanding of how our, our ideas of who matters could have dire, dire consequences on who is allowed to belong. I think Jesus knows, and his words reflect, how John's fixation on who has value and who gets to belong could result in unintended consequences, but nonetheless horrific consequences for the very people, for John himself, that Jesus came to liberate. Jesus knows how high these stakes are. He knows the potential for real harm to be caused. That's why this passage seems so challenging to me. I think for most of us, especially those who profess to love God and follow Jesus, for most of us, harm is not consciously done. So how do we go about doing no harm? I've been thinking a lot about this the last few months, about our human capacity for causing harm, especially unintentional harm. The founder of Methodism, John Wesley, recommended three rules for guides for faithful living, and the very first one, before doing good, before doing things like prayer and worship and fasting, and the other things that will help us stay in love with God, 
His very first rule is do no harm. I've been thinking about what it looks like to love and care for ourselves, for our community, for our neighbors in this time of global climate crisis, this pandemic that we just can't shake, and the debates about masks and vaccines and individual liberties and social responsibilities in our world where the choices that I make impact the environment that we share, in our world where the air that I exhale ends up in my neighbor's lungs, what does it mean for me, for us, to consciously decide to not be a stumbling block, to do no harm? I recently saw the documentary Out North by Fiverr. It's only 20 minutes long, it's free online. I encourage anybody to watch it this afternoon if you have the time. This documentary short focuses on the history and the present realities of the North Nashville neighborhood, the 37208 zip code. This film highlights the historically black neighborhood in North Nashville and how they were a thriving economic community 50 years ago until the decision was made to build I-40 through the heart of the neighborhood. As a result, buildings were demolished, vital thoroughfares became dead ends, and 80% of the black-owned businesses died. Over the next several decades, the neighborhood plunged into poverty. And as is the case in any area that's greatly affected by poverty, the consequences have been the most evident on North Nashville's most vulnerable, particularly the children. The social economic instability continues to make it difficult for children to stay fed, supported, enrolled in school, and as a result of these and other institutionalized forms of oppression, in 2018, a Bookings Institute study found that 37208 has the highest rate of incarceration in all of America. The nonprofit Gideon's Army and those who live in the community are doing incredible work to dismantle this school-to-prison pipeline. And the Out North film showcases the credible resilience and creativity of the community as told by the community members themselves. The resourcefulness of 37208 to find innovative ways to practice nonviolence as they move forward towards healing and restoration is remarkable, and it's truly something we're celebrating. But when I think about Wesley's insistence that we do no harm, and of Jesus' urgent warnings that we do not exclude anyone from life, liberation, and healing, the resilient, evident, the resilient efforts of these native Nashvillians should never have been necessary. I can't know this for sure, but I'd imagine that those who had the power to make the decision at the time for where I-40 was constructed did not come right out and say that they wanted to destroy the livelihood of this thriving North Nashville community. Nor do I believe anyone could have predicted the deep, horrific ramifications such a decision would have had on the community or the generations that follow. But the decisions that were made by the people who had the power to make them communicate clearly what they believed about which areas of town had value and about who deserved to belong. This very human tendency that we have to form value judgment and to categorize belonging accordingly does not serve any of us well in the long run. It just isn't sustainable. Once we start subconsciously assigning value to other people and using that as a framework to determine who belongs, none of us is really safe. Because when we're asking this question, what we're really asking, consciously or unconsciously, the question behind these questions is, do I have value? Do I belong? And if we continue to play by the rules that our value and our belonging are determined in the eyes of the other, it will at best be harmful for some, but it could be deadly for others. And this is just not how Jesus desires for us to live. He came to teach love, acceptance and healing, liberation from systems of oppression, social and institutional. 
He came to teach freedom from the ways that we know how to live, showing us instead that the ways that will lead to life abundant on earth as it is in heaven. Don't miss out on the life that I have for you, Jesus says. Do whatever it takes to allow yourselves and those around you to remain within my kingdom. When these human worries rise up in my chest, when my own value and belonging are unsteady, when I'm tempted to make myself feel more valuable by deciding someone else is less, when I stop and realize that my own unstated unconscious values are actually causing another harm, I come back to this picture of Jesus who is tenderly, gently wrapping his arms around this child. This picture of God, creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in between, come down to us, the extraordinary love of God incarnate in flesh in Jesus, who is sitting among us, holding us, touching us, so that we might know the way to life everlasting. Thanks be to God.